This week on the Guardian Audio Edition, Jason Burke on Al-Qaeda and how great they are a threat to the West now. John Fordham sums up the legacy of the jazz musician Ahmad Jamal and Brian Logan on Mrs. Brown's Boys, how the worst comedy ever made became a smash hit. And in this week's audiobook review, we return to the roots of cyberpunk with William Gibson's 1984 classic Neuromancer. To download for free the Guardian Audio Edition supported by audible.co.uk, go to audible.co.uk slash guardian audio. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. The Guardian. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis, and there's no Kieran Yates. She's been felled by the lurgy. Nevertheless, this week, the wonderful Robin Hitchcock is with us in the studio. The Knife, My Bloody Valentine, and Lois and the Love are paraded in Singles Club, and Delphic tell us how they climbed out of the depths to make their second album. That's all on Music Weekly from The Guardian. Tim Jones is here. He's generously standing in uh, for Kieran. Bravely standing in. Bravely. Bravely. Bravely and generously. Big big shoes to fill. Um, Thank you very much, Tim, for for, for stepping in. Uh, and, And more importantly, we're joined by Robin Hitchcock. Hello, Robin. Hello. How are you getting on? I'm all right. How are you? You you explaining you're slightly sort of jet lagged. I'm reassembling myself molecule by molecule from um, Peter Buck's um, festival that he has down in the southwest coast of Mexico. And, you know, your body gets back first and the rest of you reassembles. (laughs) When did you return from Mexico? Physically, I returned ten days ago. Oh, really? It's that yeah. bad? Is yeah, it the, it's um... that bad. But I now have one of those... I just have a sort of a, a day of two halves. <laughs> so I've just got going on part two. Right, OK. And, uh... <laughs> and was this good, the festival down in Mexico? It's a sort of charity event, you were saying? That it was lovely. Was... It was a bunch of, of mature indie rockers. I mean, you know, when we started, we weren't called indie. That's no. how long ago it was. <laughs> it was... I mean, it was it was called alternative, but then alternative became a kind of hard rock after Nirvana. But this is going going back a long way. Mm. If you if you imagine something like Haircut One Hundred, probably a bit before your time. <laughs> um, let me think. It's been very generous of you to say that Haircut One Hundred are before my time. Thank you. God bless oh. you for saying that. <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, it, it's it's it goes back a way. So it's just it's what happened to the class of '86. Mm. I mean, Johnny Marr hasn't gone down there yet. But he would just be, he's the kind of the only thing that is missing, really. Mm-hmm. It's just loads of blokes on their hind legs spangling away on the telecasters. And... Do you have to be from a certain era to get in? <laughs> yes, <laughs> actually. I, well, no, I think there was, there was a bloke, Sean came down, he's only 39. Um, I mean, they, they, <laughs> but it's because he's from Seattle. So there's a few of their kind of younger friends who are fed in. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a few female musicians, but it's largely that lot were males, and um, and there they are, and we all kind of wander up and down the beach with our state of the art, you know, mid twenty first century stomachs, and um, <laughs> and get our twenty five dollar massages, and and sort of stare back into the golden past. But it's rather sweet, really. It's what happened. They're just it's it's the compound, viejos guitarists. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, this benefits a charity, you were saying. Yeah, it's, it's actually for the Palapa Society, which is um, an educational trust that Peter and his partner, Chloe, have undertaken to, uh, or just decided they were going to raise money for. Mm. And Peter just d- did what he loves doing best, which is playing and got all his old friends to come and 
played with him in, in the courtyard of a hotel called the Hotel California. Wow. And um, Difficult to leave? No, it's <laughs> surprising. <laughs> Although they, they do play the song every day. Really? So it, it's an incentive to get out. But, but, you know, all human needs are supplied at the Hotel California. And, you know, there's Lady Petrol and everything. And um, you can just sort of groove endlessly. It, it, you can even smoke because it's outdoors. I mean, really? it is like being in 1986. Fantastic. In, in some ways, it would be good to go back to 1986, obviously. In other ways, it would be just awful to go back to 1986, wouldn't it? Oh. I mean, artistically, I meant more sort of uh, culturally. Artistic? I don't know. I mean, When Thatcher was... Britain, Robin, come on. Well, the thing is, the big thing about that time is that there were no cell phones. Absolutely. You probably noticed how, as the ashtrays disappeared, the cell phones <laughs> multiplied. There was a brief point when they were going together. So, I mean, what we're listening to, we're about to listen to now is very much music that's been made since cell phones, mm-hmm. just to put it in context. Mm-hmm. But I have, um, you know, self-proclaimed last egg to hatch out from the 60s. I am from a time before the cassette. <laughs> so for me, what I remember about the, about the 1980s is looking around and thinking... Jesus, this is the future. How bleak. I'm stuck here. <laughs> so the idea of peering back, you know, sitting here with you and lifting off a manhole and peering wistfully back at 1986 is, is bizarre because to me that's still the distant alien future. <laughs> and there were these strange spiky kids with upside down hair listening to Morrissey and things I just couldn't figure out, you know. And here we are, bingo. Um, it's, it's, it's a big year for you. It's your 60th birthday, though. There are, there are sort of celebration concerts and things happening. Yeah, well, there are celebration concerts with me in them. Yeah, yes, absolutely. You know, yes, I mean, sadly, you know, Madness and, <laughs> and uh, Sir Paul McCartney and stuff haven't been wheeled in to, to commemorate my existence, but I have. Yeah, I'm doing on the 28th of February. I am playing a retrospective show at the Village Underground in Shoreditch, which is... Have you been there? It's, no. It's in Holywell Lane, which must have been something fantastic in medieval times. So it was probably a special way of killing monks or something, <laughs> which is why it had that name. And it, you can't miss it because there's three railway carriages, three tube carriages on the roof of the village underground. It's, it's a railway arch which has been converted by some groovers into a groovarium, which means you can buy... <laughs> Amstel Light and there's nowhere to sit or something. But, you know, that's modern fun. And, um, and I'm going to play one song off every album I've released, discounting live albums and mail-order stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to take two and a quarter hours. I apologise, but there will be an interval. And if we're really lucky, there won't be an encore. I'll just, you know, one and two. What I haven't figured out is whether to go do the show forwards or backwards. And I've got a feeling the audience would enjoy it more if I did it backwards because old songs resonate more with people. It's quite a good idea. So, you know, yeah. as Imagine you... mean playing the songs backwards. That would be really impressive. <laughs> it would sound beautiful, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, the only trouble is almost anything sounds good backwards, <laughs> even bad things. <laughs> um, and you have a new album, which comes out in March. Yes. I will have a record out called Love From London, which was recorded in a bedroom in Clerkenwell. I wonder what she's thinking as she's sitting next to me Although her eyes are open and she's staring at the sea She's lost in contemplation as her hair hangs 
Abbey Road is all there in the producer Paul's bedroom, basically. So we made it there on some machines, and it's a new collection of songs. But I haven't made a record that way before. And but you know, when you've made as many or released as many records as I have, the main thing is to try and make sure that one record doesn't sound like another. Mm. You know, whatever one thinks of this record, and it's way too soon to know if the songs are any good or not. I can. Definitely say it doesn't sound like any of my other records. <laughs> so if you didn't like any of the other forty, this might be the one for you. But if you're a long-term Hitchcock fan, you know you may find it repellent. I don't know. <laughs> um, is it a sort of? I mean, I hesitate to say concept album. Is it sort of thematic? The song's kind of thematically linked on it. It seems to have a sort of vague sense of being kind of London-based. Or... It is, Alexis, it is vaguely London-based. <laughs> I listen this to it and I... This is why I'm a rock critic. Yeah, that's what's <laughs> on the billboard says. Yeah. <laughs> vaguely London-based, Alexis Petridis. Such acuity should never be jettisoned. <laughs> the... Well, the thing is, I am vaguely London-based. I realised that, that, you know, as, as, uh, as John Lennon said, life is what happens while you're making, busy making other plans. Mm. You know, I'm I'm always taking off and landing. I'm permanently somewhere else. We're all in this in this business talking to people who aren't there. It's quite odd to actually talk to people that are there that you know of as not being there. You know, I read your columns and you've heard my records, Absolutely, but you don't yeah. expect to run into each other. You no, just expect yeah. you know that that person is going to be somewhere else. Um, we spend our whole time somewhere else, and I thought, well, actually, I'm, I must be you know at least three quarters of the way through my life I should be wearing off any minute and uh, where have I been I've actually been in London all the time without noticing it Mm -hmm. or noticing it much and I thought love is better than hate and there's a few references to London's places on the record Mm. especially on the track love from London which I then took off the record (laughs) which would have made the whole thing seem much more thematic (laughs) but I just kept the last chorus and dropped it in at the end of the last song to I don't like long records and it was going to be too long so we got rid of that It's a relatively positive statement to make for a, a perennially remote, morose person like me, I guess. Do you, th- do you think of yourself? Are you, are you never strike me as a particularly morose songwriter. Oh, that's good. Um, when I think, I just want to die. And when I am, I just want to live. Mm. You know, there's no place for the modern mind to go. Well, we know as rational beings and as guardian readers that everything is fucked. You know, the reason we spend £1.40 a day to read The Guardian is to reconfirm our deeply felt conviction that there is no hope for our species and that we know better, but it ain't going to work. But at least we know we can read, you know, what like-minded people... We can get that That's echo. Just from reading Alexis's bit, isn't uh, it? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, and the travel ads by the crossword and all that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, so ra- rationally, we know that. 
there's nowhere to go but but emotionally you know and physically we're full of pep you know mm. you want more of everything you've got to have some more food and sex and lodging and music and vinyl and obsolete formats mm -hmm. and uh, all this keeps us going even though we know there's nowhere for it to go we should just pack up and put ourselves in a warehouse in Croydon somewhere and let the whole thing fade away you know that the, the civilization that willfully that let itself go to sleep but we can't you know a stevie wonder astutely observed boogie on reggae woman that's exactly what we're doing <laughs> in the bedroom so I was quite interested that's that's technology yeah. for you you know if it had it would have been really muffled mm -hmm. but there's all these reverbs everywhere and um, I mean do you think it'll just they'll get to a point where just no one needs to go into a studio at all I think that's pretty much why we did it in the bedroom I said to Paul I said to Paul where can we make the record and he said I'll make it in my bedroom it's there aren't any decent mid-price studios left wow you know it's not I hadn't reached the bit where I was going to reach into my life savings and um, hem hem and, you know, rent three days in Abbey Road or, or, or have a whip round or something, you know, must do this before I go. And he, as he'd got a studio in his bedroom, it made sense to do it there. But, I mean, the drums, none of the drums, they're all real sounds, but they're sure. not, you know, there was no, no drummer laid a hand on a, on a stick to actually... We only had room for one person at a time. You know, if the cello was overdubbing, then I had to go and stand in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, you've met, you've, when did the first Soft Boy single come out? 1977, 78? I mean, you've been making records yeah. for a long time. Mm. Does that sort of notion that recording in a studio is probably over, it's probably, you know, gone the way of the eight-track cassette or whatever, does that sadden you? Is that Not really, because technology <coughs> gives and technology takes away. I mean, I'm forever devoted, I'm welded amorously to the late 60s. You know, I just parade between 1965 and 68 and back again for my daily walk which I, th I mean they just invented eight tracks at that point but actually we grew up with the LP and then this terrible thing happened where the CD came and 
and the gap, that, that little river of silence at the end of track five or track six before you know before you remember track one side two was such a joy absolutely you know yeah. here comes v2 schneider or yeah. whatever wow you know <laughs> queen jane approximately or within you without you and and once records became a big lump of unfettered sound it, it became harder work you know you you did you think twice about putting a record on and you've been safe from that by shuffle now you don't have to listen to lps at all or you know and studios going there's no great, nothing wrong with the mystique of, of the studio going. It's a drag for people to be out of work, but it's really, you know, they will, eventually there will be no music business, but while there are humans, there will always be music. So, in a way, the, the news is good. positive note um let's move on um reg presley from the trogs uh passed away a remarkable man it would appear i didn't realize quite how remarkable until uh, until i read uh, uh, his obituaries which are amazing not only did he kind of uh, obviously enliven the 60s by singing like a sort of sexually predatory farmhand um he <laughs> <laughs> um he he um he ate gold <laughs> um, he not, ate, ate, he gold. ate gold on a daily basis. He used to take gold to some mm. sort of. He believed this would make him live forever. How wrong he was! And uh, yeah, he used to take gold to some sort of I don't know ironworks or something in uh, Andover, yeah. and it would be sort of zapped and turned into you know an incredible heat and kind of turned into ashes, which uh, Reg Presley would eat on a daily basis. In a visit from the Goon Squad, don't right. know if you've read that book. I have not. No, but they um, the big record label exec is taking he gold. Maybe he's based on Reg Preston. <laughs> yeah. Were you a fan of the Trogs, Robin? Yeah, they they were good. I mean, in their time, did he write most of the songs? Yeah. So when they did that, um, "Love Is All Around," he vast right. sums of money, which he then used to investigate UFOs and crop circles, and presumably top up his yeah, gold, up his gold, gold, gold reserve, <laughs> Take, taking money to the Andover alchemist. Probably a, month, yeah. <laughs> a month's food shopping is all he got out of that, probably. <laughs> Maybe he should have eaten it raw. That was the problem. <laughs> Cooking it. But, you know, he might be living forever on another plane. Yes, absolutely. You know, like, yeah. like the pharaohs, you know, <laughs> that the, the Reg was preparing himself for a, his astral presence is, is now solid gold. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, other thing that he did is he was obviously very interested in UFOs and would re- report, <laughs> sort of report upon his... Um, experience of seeing UFOs or, or, you know, talking to people who've been abducted by UFOs or whatever, but would, would, would refer to the UFO itself as either that bugger or that little bastard. <laughs> so, <laughs> absolutely brilliant, you know, the little bastard was flying all over the place. You know, amazing, amazing uh, stuff. Did he talk to people who'd been in UFOs? He did indeed, yeah. Yeah, that was his big... That was what he spent the money from lovers all around. I heard a lovely story about him, actually. I heard uh, somebody else's business... Someone told me this yesterday, that he, he was hard up Reg Presley and somebody else... He was about to sell all his copyrights 
and somebody else, another artist's business manager went, you mustn't do that and talked him out of it. And then Reg Preston never saw him again for years, didn't sell his copyrights. Completely out of the blue, after Love Is All Around was normal 15 weeks, sent this guy a cheque for £10,000. Really? Just to say thank you. Just, sort of, yeah, that's quite, you know, oh. quite a sweet, sweet bloke. Good old Reg. Uh, we should, do you went to some Jake Bug gig this I week? I went to some Jake Bug gig in Lincoln. Yeah, it was absolutely wild. Was it? Yeah. They only served beer in two pint pots in, right. uh, in that venue. So In two pint pots? Yeah, so everyone, even, even guys standing at the back just nursing two pints of, of lager. Wow. This um, is to encourage people to drink sensibly. Yes, yes. So they, they were drinking sensibly. I, I, there was a fight after the first song, which is like, it's basically an acoustic number. So he comes on, plays this gentle finger-picked acoustic song. There's this guy getting led out by two bouncers. On his way out, smacks this other guy in the face just because he can before he... Before he, he <laughs> must have put down his two-pint jug <laughs> yeah. to do so. It, oh. What's this venue? This place sounds amazing. The Engine Shed. The Engine Shed in yeah. Lincoln. And it was Larry, it was... Uh, it was Larry, but uh, only about four or five of his songs are, are Larry. Mm. And the rest, are, the rest are just very gentle, kind of almost like Dylan-esque numbers. Wow. But it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's, but, I mean, part of it is when you go to... Yeah, you know, I mean, Lincoln's not exactly out in the sticks, but you know what I mean? When you go to venues that aren't visited regularly by every band, you mm. do get a, a more vibrant reaction. Do you find this, Robin? Have you toured in sort of more out-of-the-way places? I've and... never played in Lincolnshire. <laughs> I, I, the only time we went there was, um, I think, in the soft boys' days, and actually and that, none of us had ever been north of um, Wisbeach or something like that, and we were going up, and we, found, and we stopped at... A, there was a slag heap and we stopped there. It was Grantham where Thatcher was born. And we went into a transport cafe, as was in those days, and um, it just radiated menace to our you know, timid <laughs> southern selves. But I remember, I, know, I, mem- I remember people saying that in Lincolnshire, Lincolnshire was the last place that people could legally wear flared trousers <laughs> in, the, in the 70s, before they were brought back again by, um, <coughs> by Perry Farrell. You know, there, there was that whole point in the early 70s. So I haven't, no, I, I haven't, I'll make a big note of that place you've mentioned. It sounds amazing. It's it sounds like if you serve, I mean, I'm not being censorious about this at all, but if you serve beer to every, twice the amount of beer that you would normally serve to a person, <laughs> it doesn't really matter who plays, there'd probably be a fight. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, yeah. but I do think there's something about, like, because the wildest Nick gigs. Drake could be up there. You know? <laughs> yeah, oh, but it was a bit like that, because... People beating the shit out of each other, the strains of Hazy Jane, you know. But like a few years ago, I went to see a band in the Orkneys, and that was just the same, only even wilder, because it's not like, you know, it's like the Bees, and they're not the most righteous band of no, all the time, and you, no. know, they're, you know, they're stoners, but uh, people were losing their shit completely. Yeah, I, 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 there was a, a British Sea Power played on the Silly Isles, right, I think they were yeah. the first band of any note to ever play on the Silly Isles, and um, they were... Uh, lead singer was telling me about that and he said yeah that was again it was like really young everybody just turned up it, didn't yeah, really it, was, whole just, place it was just a up, gig yeah. and therefore there's like you know 70 year old people yeah. there and da 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 and um they had a vote and voted the bass player of british sea power better looking than the most handsome boy in the village <laughs> just, it was like a lovely lovely little thing well that's that's nice i mean when if people get together and vote that the bass player is handsome that's very different <laughs> to just beating the shit out of the <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's a that bit more sophisticated great. isn't yeah. it well, um, but anyway, look, let us move on um, and do Singles Club. Um, Robin is going to join us for Singles Club and let's start with his track. Forever, 
That's Dark Serenade by Lois and the Love, Robin Hitchcock's choice for Singles Club this week. A new art, I'd never heard of Lois and the Love. Tell us about Lois and the Love, tell us about why you brought this track in. Well, the connection is that uh, Lois is managed by Paul Noble, who produced my most recent record. Okay. And Paul's been telling me about Lois for quite a while. She is the daughter of the actor Ray Winston. Oh, and really? Another yeah, yeah. Ray Winston daughter? Um, why? What's the... Jamie, Jamie Winston is a... a Famous actress, his other daughter. Oh, right, okay. That hasn't percolated through to me yet, but right. that's not surprising, really. Um, I haven't heard it in the sarcophagus. <laughs> but, but um, uh, well, he's been talking about Lois for quite a long time, and I'd say, oh, how's it going? What are you doing? You know, and the bit of getting the group, because it's Lois and the love, it's a group. Mm-hmm. And um, I just got the impression she was pretty intense, so I... Finally, you know, he started putting stuff on up on YouTube, and um, that was the the favourite of the songs I've seen. I've seen about three or four, but she is, um, I mean, she's she sort of seems like somewhere between Janis Joplin and Susie Sue, I suppose. I really enjoyed it as a performance um, to to watch and to to listen to, and. Um, you know, it sounds really good. I don't know where they're going to go or mm. what they're going to do, but I, I get the impression that Lois is quite literally one to watch. She has a she has a hell of a voice. Yes, she yes. has a really potent, powerful voice, I think, which is uh, rock string. Tim, what did you make of that? Um, well, I think I like Lois a lot more than The Love, Right. in a way, because I, I thought I got the J- Joplin thing as well. Yeah. But I also thought it, when it started, it had quite an like, ethereal kind of... A, almost yeah. it might go in a Cocteau's Twins kind of way or something and yeah. I wish there was a bit more subtlety to the music I guess because it was a bit sledgehammery I thought and a bit classic rocks kind of it was a bit it bludgeoned what she does a bit but then at is the this same representative time, uh, Robin of uh, the rest of her stuff I don't know all of it I think it I think there is what you would call a hard rock element in right. it probably the same as there is in somebody like a band like Garbage or something mm-hmm. you know there's the idea that you are never going to stray too far from modern rock mm. And as you say, it'd be very interesting to hear singing with something like the, with the sort of Cocteau Twins type, mm-hmm. you know, something much more glassy and yeah. ethereal than what she would do. I'll have a word with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's Dark Serenade by Lois Love. And that, you said, is up on YouTube, so people can check out her. Yes, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Right, well, let us move on to Tim's choice. That's the knife, full of fire. They're sort of comeback track. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed time. at how big the knife appeared to have become by stealth. And by doing nothing. Really. By doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. I was contacted out of the blue by the bloke, one of the blokes who worked on, we refurbished a house a few years ago. One of the blokes who worked on that, a guy in his 50s, <laughs> texted, sent me an email, is there any way you can get me tickets for the knife gig? At the Roundhouse, and I just sort of thought, wow, this is sort of indicative of the way that the sort of myth or the cult of this mm-hmm. band has spread. This is a very long piece of music, is it not, Tim? I think this might put that guy off. <laughs> I went back to listen to their first three albums and thinking it was going to be similarly spooky kind of 
quite intimidating pop music and actually it sounds quite light in mm. comparison with that which they don't really do things by half do they that was like, no. it's nine minutes the album i think is gonna be 96 minutes long and it's got a 20 minute track on and you see, I'm already recoiling a little. 96 minutes, that's a lot. I think it's going to be quite harsh, but uh, <laughs> just listening back then, it, I, I was quite surprised how much it sounded like the Prodigy's Firestar. A little. <laughs> let, let, let's not over, overplay the Firestar for angle. I mean, the rhythm sounds a little bit like Firestar. Mm-hmm. So, Robin, are you a, a fan of the knife? Are you aware of the knife? Not very, no. Uh, where are they from? Sweden. Sweden. Right. The okay. brother and sister duo from Sweden. Um, who perform usually perform masked, don't they? Yeah, they're, yeah. Oh, um, they're very, they're very sort of an honour. I've interviewed her, Karen, as Fever A, as Fever yeah. A. Yes, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about that. Tim, that track was that was that made because it's nine minutes. Was that ma- recorded to go with the video? Was yes, the video that, made? That was made. Was I think? Well, I think that which came it's first. Billed, it's billed as a film with music from the knife. But, right. Um, so. so there's obviously a story going on in there. I've yeah. only seen it once, but that sort of. You know, the old people and the babysitter and the, mm-hmm. the woman urinating between the cars and the glasses breaking and the, some really great photography angles. There's yes, a bit where someone's, angle. there's a camera inside a sink looking up at when this guy the washing out the glass. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I was intrigued by it. I, it seemed, I also got, uh, it seemed like sort of a bit like Bjork with big audio dynamite sped up. <laughs> elements. <laughs> And, and that works quite really well from a narrative point of view because the because the beat is extremely regular, like yeah. as as in the you know equals MC squared that kind of you can then put a sort of story over the top, mm. and I'd be interested to just watch it again a few times and get what what the story mm. is. So no, I was no, intrigued. I agree. It by does it. feel like it's almost meant because what it does is really amp up the claustrophobia and the the tension and the drama of what's going on the screen. When a lot of the time, like you say, it's just kind of angles of people doing things but yeah it, it all feels really kind of you're on a, a knife edge just because of the kind of relentless beat and also they the way things co- come in and out like waves of volume just rising and yeah going. but it never really lets up from from start no. to finish and then it ends on salt and pepper yes absolutely <laughs> yes bizarrely yeah <laughs> um, of fantastic. all the things i saw i've never seen the knife live i saw fever ray mm-hmm. uh live and it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever been witness to. I've never seen a concert stage like it. And it was in Brighton as part of a dance music kind of festival. And they filled the entire room full of dry ice. I mean, you literally could, could barely see your hand in front of your face. Then they did this thing that I've never seen anybody do before, which is they had lasers, but they projected them and effectively made kind of a ceiling of light about foot and a half above your head. Oh. So it's incredibly claustrophobic and unpleasant. <laughs> there was a guy next to me who had visibly partaken of, of the kind of substances perhaps one would at a dance festival. And, uh, man, he was having a terrible night. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it all went wrong from the minute he stepped into that room. You know? <laughs> and the band on stage, all you could see was occasionally, they all had, like, sort of weird clown masks yeah. on and things like that. So you'd occasionally see, like, a sort of clown's face looming out of the gloom and this incredibly gloopy, weird... Music. It was, it was a remarkable thing. I'd be fascinated to see what these shows are like stage. You know, what, what's the relationship of Fever Ray to Knife? That's, she's one half of the Knife. Oh, it's the, the, the she, uh, oh. Karen, and, her and her brother are the Knife. They, 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 they've done lots of weird. They won a lot of awards in Sweden and then refused to turn up to accept them and sent genuinely quite sort of disturbing videos to mm-hmm. to the sort of Swedish equivalent of the Brits, the Swedes. <laughs> they so that one that they, that goes with this track um, was was that shot in Stockholm? Or, um, I or think somewhere? so. The director is responsible for doing. Uh, she contributed to this series of feminist porn films called uh, Dirty Diaries. So. Oh really? 
I don't do I said I just like oh them, of course. <laughs> Dirty Doris. Um what's her name? Marit Osberg. I, 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 my my knowledge of feminist porn directors I have to lets me down once well, more. Get on to love film. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, ninety eight minutes is a long time for an album, yeah, is it I was, not? I was wondering if the double album's oh. coming back actually. Well, that's the thing is, I mean, to, which takes us back to what you were talking about, asking about, you know, the studio thing earlier. As, as things are just sort of getting into the, through the exit door, then they become retro and fashionable, like, mm. like the cassette, like vinyl, which is now the only flourishing area Absolutely. of music. So it's possible that double vinyl albums... I mean, at least... But hang on, if it's 98 you know, minutes, 90, that's, that's a triple out. We're, we're, we're heading towards topographic oceans territory, yeah. aren't we? For good audio quality, a triple, triple album would be recommended. Wow. But at least you could break album. it down into individual, you know, you could listen to 15 minutes aside mm-hmm. and it would, you know, wouldn't yeah. be so bad. Really look forward to seeing the gigs um, and I really look forward to hearing the rest of the album. Knife uh, Full of Fight is out, is, again, it's on YouTube, isn't it? Yeah. As everything is these days, I didn't really have a release date. Right, let's move on finally to my choice. <laughs> That's my bloody Valentine. Wonder two, the closing track from the uh, enormously long-awaited uh, fifth. I think it's is it is it fifth? My bloody Valentine album. Anyway, MBV, which came out, finally appeared midnight on uh, Saturday, Sunday morning. I make no bones about my my my, my sort of fandom regarding my bloody Valentine. They're my favourite band uh, when I was a teenager. I used to go and see them live a great deal. I long ago gave up any hope of hearing any new music for them, from them. You know, obviously, you approach something like a record like this with a real degree of trepidation, and I didn't want to play it. And I think that track in particular is just... I mean, it just doesn't sound like anything else. I mean, it has no... It's clearly... For one thing, it was clearly recorded in the mid-'90s, because that sort of drum and bass beat that they use... You know what I mean? The rhythm of it is, is sort of an old... I think it's a sample of a Fotec record, actually, but it's, it's of um, the mid-'90s rather than recently. And it just sounds like a... In transmission from Venus or something to me. It just sounds like, <laughs> but there's no relation to anything else around. They exist in their own space and time. Um, you know, I just think it's just a totally unique thing. I think it does bear a relation with a lot of stuff around. Well, yes. Well, but because a lot of people have been influenced by them, especially in recent years, mm. and a lot of almost scenes have taken their sounds like bits of Chillwave or Witch House or Cloud Rap as well. Yeah, Cloud Rap. And what's really interesting is. Some bands, like, say, the Big Pink, have actually really tried to mimic their sound. And mm-hmm. even despite all that, and even despite them being in vogue, when they actually come out and put a record out, it sounds nothing like what anyone no, else has tried it, to mimic. You it, can't copy that, really. It was you? ever thus. Yeah. I mean, I remember it was that way in the late 80s and early 90s okay. when you had loads of shoegazing bands that were formed in their way. Right. And the new My Bloody Valentine single or whatever would come out, and it would sound nothing like, you know, it deliberately shifted things away from the sound that people were trying to copy and I think that's quite sort of laudable it's a bit um, of a producer's nightmare when a band come in and say oh we want it to sound a bit like that yeah <laughs> what how because it sounded like when I first played that I did actually look to close a window yeah like, which 
Well, you see, that's twice. There you go. There's the <laughs> naughty's equivalent of people returning Loveless to the shop, <laughs> yes. which apparently has lots of friends who worked in record shops. So <laughs> Loveless continually returned the day after it was bought with, there's something wrong with this record. The pressing's <laughs> wrong. Da, 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 da. Robin, are you a fan? It's a language that I haven't learned. You know, I, I'm, when I was a kid, I bought Beefheart's Trout Mask Replica mm-hmm. on import for £6 from one stop. And, you know, I was six pounds was a, a great deal of money and I was 16 and it, it wasn't available in Britain. And I bought Trout Mask Replica and put it on and I, I just couldn't understand it. But I'd spent six quid on it. So I was determined to keep playing it until I sort of, mm. until I did. And I found myself kind of rewired by Trout Mask Replica. Once I began to understand it, nothing else looked the same. Mm. And I... I imagine it's the same with my bloody Valentine. That once you have adjusted your ears to that, you know you're 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 in some code. You know things, everything becomes different. I haven't got to that state yet. I mean, to me, it sounds like a a collage of different rhythms and sounds and tunes over a like a yeah you know drum and bass mm-hmm. beat. I I would be intrigued to hear it with the vocal mixed up. <laughs> you know, being yeah. the old the old fashioned songsmith that I am, mm. like, right? Mm. Let's get the vocal, yeah, 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 lads. Yeah, yeah, you know, and see that. Um, but I know that's not the point of it. The <clears> point of it is to be in mondo bloody Valentine. So, <laughs> I, I I listened to another couple of tracks. Uh, there was, I really like the one with no vocals at all. Just oh, that's a sort of stomping kind thundering of thundering drums. Yeah. And I thought I like that because it it was more hypnotic. Mm. This seems to be. It doesn't seem to be about hypnosis. It's almost about a sta- starting to establish a trance and then subverting it. Mm. So, I, you know, I've no idea what it does to you, but, but I will take your word for it that it's, <laughs> that it's nutritious and that, you know, if you've... So, but then tell me, if, if this was recorded in the mid-'90s, or you think um, mm. this isn't like Kevin Shields sort of came back 20 years later and made a new record. You think no, this is just think what's this is been bit, lying I think this around? Album is bits that have been lying around that he's discarded. I mean, oh. he, he made, he claimed to have made or nearly made, nearly finished making an album in about 1996, 97, um, and then just thought it wasn't good enough and binned all of it, and then was talked back into, talked into sort of listening to it again 21 years later. And, That's and terminally cool, isn't it? It is amazing. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't understand how he sort of survived, because they, they signed to Ireland for a quarter of a million quid in 1992, Ireland eventually cut the money off in 1997, and my bloody Valentine continued to not make record. You know, it's, it's like and they you... continued to not play live. <clears throat> they played live. They started playing live in 2006. <laughs> so, so, if, they, if financially they, they were forced into action, so they managed nine to years to later. coast for nine years. Yeah, he's doing a bit of producing and work yeah, he was on... in Primal Screen. Yeah, he's in Primal Screen for that. Um, well, they're obviously on some kind of. Feed that we can't see or whatever. Yeah. You, know, you can't. It's, it's, I find it all a, a complete. Uh, They're not mystery. eating gold, are they? They're not eating. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, there you go. Um, Wonder Two by My Bloody Valentine. There is a version of that on YouTube. You can, of course, uh, download the album. Um, it says rather hopefully, uh, if you download the album, the vinyl or CD will be with you in two weeks. I say I believe it when I see it. Frankly, bearing in mind the album has arrived twenty-one years later than it was supposed to. Anyway, that's Singles Club.
When Delphic gathered to make a second album, they ended up practically living in the studio and a bad case of writer's block descended. But they dug themselves out and Collections, their new record, is a pretty radical departure. They came in to talk to me about that tricky second album, remixing for the Olympics and burning the studio to keep warm. I'm Matt. I'm James. And I am Rick. And we're Delphi. talk a little bit about the album it is you know unquestionably a radical departure from your debut album what influenced that what what made you do that just something we'd always wanted to do i think it was always kind of a plan to well our favorite artists are the ones that always developed and pushed themselves and changed and uh and it's, it's, it's yeah it's inspiring to do something different like mm. we did try and not consciously try and write the same record but we our initial ideas were, were more similar mm-hmm. and we weren't you know, you're looking and everyone's going, Matt and James are going, yeah, it's good. And you just know that it's not exciting everyone. Yeah. So it, it's only kind of new things that excite us. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to find innovation in music in a time when a lot's gone before us. Mm-hmm. So we're like desperately searching for that. And mm-hmm. we think we found something that is a bit different. And we have quite a rebellious side to us as well, which is, you know, we made the first album out of the back of listening to a lot of what we thought was bad indie. So mm-hmm. we turned to synthesizers, made that, and then every band sticks a synth on it, which is, t- t- we kind of have got a, a lot of synths and we've kind of have got maybe a bit of a purist view about synths. When you stick a preset synth on something, it doesn't sound good to us. We rebel against that and we mm-hmm. moved away and found samplers and thought, this is the way that we want to push ourselves within electronic music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've worked with two, last time around you worked with Ian Pearson, this time around you've worked with two, two pretty different producers, haven't you? Mm. Tell us about that. Well, what was really interesting about them was, you know, obviously we've got um, a lot of admiration for them both, but they both work in very different ways. And we'd kind of, we'd kind of thought, right, well, we'll get Tim to do five. And this we'll is get, Tim Goldsworthy. Sorry, yeah, Tim Goldsworthy yeah, and five. Ben Allen. And we thought we'd split the record between them and uh, they both like properly produce them. But... As we went in there and we got working with them, they were quite a complementary team in a completely accidental way because Tim's very much focused on the minutia, mm-hmm. as uh, our American engineer used to say. Um, he's not dead or anything. It's just when we're working with him, that's what he said. And yeah, Tim's very like the minuscule and like organic, and he's fantastic with the little sounds and just tuning them to really tickle your ears. And then we went and worked with Ben, and Ben's very big and brash and he's quick at decision making and he does it and he moves on and much more the bigger picture and he has a background in R&B and hip hop right? mm. which is what attracted mm. to him really Help the 
Puff Daddy's engineer right. for like 10, 10 years, years yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, so he will have worked with so many different people through course. that yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and that was the main selling point for <clears> us <throat> we were like that's really you know we went through a load of producers and looking at people and it's like oh indie producer X indie mm. producer Y and it's just like we can't do that you know and it's, it's hard mm. and it's, especially as you know like a, a band like us don't have loads of money to mm. get you know necessarily making records expensive so to sure. find someone like Ben Allen who's done a bit of Indie music, but he's also been Puff Daddy's engineer, and and then CeeLo mm. Green, amongst others, he's done. And they did the uh, Animal Collective record post uh, Meriwether, didn't he? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, and so you were recording in the states. Yeah, we Atlanta. recorded for two months in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and that kind of seeps into the record as well. You know, you, you you get over there, and we picked up a car from the airport. We had we brought over loads of gear, stick on the radio, and if you did that over in England, you'd mm. get you'd get indie, you'd get mm. a bit of you know dance and stuff like that but over there you've just got hip hop 24-7 really that's it you change the channel and it's just hip hop again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's the same artist isn't it <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> it's just Young Jeezy over and over Young yeah, yeah. Jeezy and Trey Songz Trey Songz yeah. <laughs> um, is it I mean other than the fact that it's hip hop on the radio 24-7 it must be quite different from where did you record your last album did you record that in Manchester or did you go uh, to yeah. Berlin we did a little both. bit in Berlin a little bit in Manchester and then we went to kind of some of those Wales studios both of these are cold grey Mm-hmm. Cities, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Atlanta isn't. Mm-hmm. It's not. No. But we, I mean, we we did write the majority of this album in a cold, grey area in the middle of Cheshire with no mm-hmm. no one around. Yeah, you moved like. to sort. Of, you you kind of all moved in together, like the Manson family. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, we we've all, we always were living together. Right. Um, and actually, we moved out from one another because it got to that point. Sure. It's just you know someone's going to get home, killed. And we kind of went to live with each other in the studio. So yeah, right, exa- of, yeah, exactly. So we didn't really ever leave each other, did we? Was yeah. that okay? Oh, it was awful. Yeah, it was it was dreadful, um, and that's why we didn't write anything for about six months because really? we were just yeah. I mean, you know, we kind of, we were on tour for like two years, and then we finished touring, and we're like, right, we just want to be writing because we've been touring for so long. We had all these ideas, and we were so excited about the second record, and we went in there full of you know hope and confidence, and nothing happened for six months or so. And so you were living in a studio together. Mm, trying to write and not being able to write for six months. Mm. Yeah, that sounds absolutely... It was the lowest point, really, really of our musical career, yeah. <clears throat> the depth of depression, really. Looking back on it, we, we made the wrong decisions. We kind of came off tour in 2010 and thought, we'll get straight into the studio, we can do this. Mm. Uh, no problems, we'll have an album out in six months, fine. But in reality, we'd been touring that material for two years. We'd kind of tried to write bits and bobs, but... We should have had a break after coming off the road. We should have t- given ourselves two weeks, but we didn't. And that's the kind of band that we are. We, we kind of think that we should capitalise on every single moment. And as a result, we had a, f- a few months of kind of like quite a dark place in this in this barn where we were kind of living in each other's pockets and waking up freezing cold and figuring out that the oil in the tank that, that heats the place had gone. And right. We had, and had nothing left. It took us a while to figure that bit out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the owner just phoned up and said, oh, the oil's gone, that's why you're really cold. Yeah, oh, okay. right, we've been here for three months. Like, I've got <laughs> five layers of thermals on. Right. Right. Maybe we shouldn't have burnt most of the studio for wood. <laughs> Never mind. How did your record company react? You know, I, these are... These are Tough times for the music business, and maybe the last thing you want as a mm. as a, a man, a record company executive, is 
Hot new band, Delphic, come back. We've made a record that bears, I guess to be said, bears virtually no resemblance to the record that you <laughs> yeah. made previously. You know, I mean, I genuinely, if you told me it was not the same band, you know what I mean? I mm. wouldn't necessarily have thought it was you, mm. which is a great, as you say, it's a great mm. thing. How did the record company react? I think they look at us as an albums band, not kind of a band that's going to go, right, you're going to have one single off of there that's going to go to there. It's kind of like, we like the way that you have a vision. And we had a vision for the first record, mm-hmm. and we had a very strong vision for this record. And, and I think that's kind of, in a way, rubbed off and sort of kept us in, in good faith with them. And we've, we've kind of, we, we were away for three years. I mean, mm-hmm. I think only someone that trusts you and trusts a band that has a vision is going to be able to do that. Do you remember going in there, though, with the, like, the demo of the record? And uh, and one of the guys was like, I like it, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Do you know what it is? And we were like, Yeah, yeah. Honestly, it's going to be more like this. We're going to finish it. It's going to be. Mm. It's going to be cohesive. And he's like, All right, great. Wow. We'll see you then. And you know, yeah. you hear all these horror stories about major labels and all that. And I mean, you know, I've got a lot of respect for Polydor for kind of sticking with us mm-hmm. and you know having having that faith in us mm. so far. Anyway. with the Olympics tell me about that and how did it come about well um, we had just finished the record we'd come back from Atlanta and a couple of days later we got a call from our manager saying that one of the tracks that to be honest we'd always had trouble placing on the record when we were doing track listings it was kind of always nod on out had been chosen as one of five Olympics songs we didn't really know what that meant I mean we were like, what, do the athletes each get given an EP? Or, <laughs> you know, is this going to be on when they cross the line? Mm. And, you know, what? But it was a weird thing, that music for the Olympics. Because I didn't, the Muse song, which I was under mm. the impression was kind of like the official, mm. I, I didn't hear that at all no, until Muse appeared at the end. I think it was a nice idea from the Olympics, mm. but it, they, it didn't really pan out maybe the way people thought yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, no. um, it, yeah. The main thing that we could hear was our remix of Chariots of Fire. That, uh, that, <laughs> that was the moment. Yeah, yeah, they played yeah, that, that was yeah when they won medals and stuff. It's like <laughs> yeah. this big beatsy version of Travis Fire. I remember awesome. seeing Laura Troy receiving her, her gold medal, and it was as it was put around her neck that our chariots just went. I just stood up and. Did they give any reasons to why they picked it? Did they say, "Well, this embodies"? Because I mean, obviously, the 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 Muse song seemed to embody some. Peculiar Nietzschean <laughs> crush the weak. <laughs> they must suffer and die that we will win. Um, did you? Your, your song isn't like that. Did they say what it embodied of the Olympic? I'm not, I'm not sure that new song embodied the Olympic spirit at all. But did, did yours? You know, they gave there were there were five rings, weren't there, for the five Olympic right. rings? And I think there was kind of hope and energy and sounds awful. It was it, terrible, really cliched kind of things. But I think ours was ours was energy. But I don't know how they will have used that. <laughs> I don't. I don't yeah. have a clue. Maybe ours was the antidote to muses, like yeah. one ring to rule them all. You know, like, <laughs> What's next ring. for you? Are you are you keen to get? I mean, touring the last album, I gather, you know, was a fairly fraught process. Ultimately, was quite a fraught process for you, and sort of brought you to the brink of insanity. Are you? Do you have trepidation about going back on the road? At the moment, we're really excited about it. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, you haven't started yet. Like, yeah, ask us again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what's what's nice is. 
on a second record, you've obviously got double the material. Mm. You know, on the first record, it was we had 10 songs or so, like right. maybe 12, that we could play to people. And now we can play longer, have more variation, and it's a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, what was this is presumably the, the first time that, that your fans, your fan base, got to hear the new material? How did they react? Are you concerned about it? Because again, you know, it's a great thing because you know you're not in any way um, underestimating your fans by putting out a completely different record. You know, mm. is there a tiny little bit of you that's sort of concerned about that? Do you think I wish we had underestimated them a bit more? <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, I think no. we'd be I think we'd be disrespecting them more if we kind of sold them something that they already knew mm. or that they were expecting. You know, we've looked at, we're such huge fans of people like your Bjorks and Radioheads that, that do change up. As fans ourselves, we like it when a, when a band or an act moves on and goes, look, this is what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And if you buy into me as an artist, then then I'll, I'll listen to you, whatever you do. Mm-hmm. So and we're trying to find innovation in music. Like, we're desperately trying to find that for ourselves. So therefore, we can't write the same album again. Of course, of course, of course. And also, it must be important to do that just to keep yourselves interested. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's <laughs> got to be completely honest. This record is completely honest. Hundred mm-hmm. percent behind it and proud of it because we feel it's true to ourselves and trying to find something new. That was Delphic. Collections is out now on Polydor. That's it for this week. Big thank you to Robin Hitchcock for coming in. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Alexis. An absolute pleasure. And many thanks to Tim for standing in. It's great. Excellent. Uh, for more details and links from the show, head to guardian.co.uk forward slash music weekly. I'll see you next week. Bye bye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.